So they say that when you marry someone, you marry their entire family. Now, for some of you in this room, maybe that's not really a good news story for you. My story has been great, and I'm not just saying that because my in-laws are in the room. It really has been. Um, But whatever the case is, a marriage does add more people to your life, not just your spouse. And, And with those new additions come new responsibilities, relationships, stories, and traditions that now become yours. So I bring that up because as we've been working our way through these first two chapters of Matthew, I just feel like Joseph had no idea what he was getting into when he first locked eyes with this girl from Nazareth. Joseph was a carpenter, regular guy, and now he's being visited by angels. His wife-to-be is pregnant with a child that he's told will save his people from their sins. Like, if, if someone told me that my kid, who wasn't even like my kid, was going to save God's people from their sins, I'd be like, what? Like, like, I'm just trying to swing a hammer and get through the day, right? Like, that's a lot to take in. From, from Luke's gospel, we're told that before the baby was born, he had to pick up and travel about 90 miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem. And so I guess the point that I'm trying to make is that Joseph's relationship with Mary ushered into his life disruption after disruption. But one of the things that I believe Matthew is highlighting for us is how Joseph responds to each of those disruptions. The title of our sermon this morning is When Faith Disrupts, but I think a better title would have been Faith Always Disrupts or even Faith and Love Always Disrupt. See, Joseph could have simply said no when he was first visited by the angel, and truth be told, his life would have been far less complicated, but that's not what he does. He entrusts himself to the word of God. He postures himself in love toward Mary and his adopted son, and his life is never the same. But that's the reality about faith. Those of us who entrust ourselves to God, if we truly have bent our knee to King Jesus, then our lives ought never to be the same. Things are going to absolutely change in our lives. Now, I guess I could turn this into a sermon on how to be a husband like Joseph, but that would miss the entire point that Matthew is trying to make. And these stories of faith that make up the first two chapters of Matthew, what we see is an ordinary blue-collar guy, Joseph the carpenter, being used by God to usher in his kingdom. And it really is something. Like, it's really something to to just watch this story unfold. And, And not only do we see Joseph entrusting himself to the word of God, but there's also a sense that God is entrusting himself to Joseph, that he would faithfully submit to this calling that was placed upon his life. And and that might feel a little weird to some of us, even hearing those words, that that God is entrusting himself to Joseph. But as we'll see, that kind of seems to be what emerges. And so in this next section, we're going to see how God uses the simple faith of Joseph to reveal both the identity and the mission of this child. That the simple faith of Joseph reveals the identity and the, and the mission of this child. So with that, let's jump in. We are in Matthew chapter 2. If you have your Bibles and you want to turn there with me, we will be looking at verses 13 through 15 this morning. 
as we've been doing over the last number of weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the New Testament passage and then we will go back and look at the Old Testament backdrop to help us understand more fully what Matthew is trying to communicate to us. I don't know if you've noticed this, but, but every week we've seen that, that Matthew was calling our attention to a particular Old Testament passage. And, and if you remember, I explained that Matthew's audience was primarily Jewish, which is why he is spending so much time demonstrating how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament scriptures. And I actually did a quick search on the term that's translated as fulfilled, and I learned that when referring to the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures, it shows up 14 times in Matthew's gospel, while only twice in Mark and in Luke, and seven times in John. So Matthew clearly has an agenda here. He wants us to see something. So let's take a look, verses 13 through 15. It reads as follows. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Merry Christmas. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill... What the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I have called my son. A couple things. Right? This event takes place right after the wise men had departed to their own country by another way. If you remember from last week, the wise men were told by Herod, hey, when you figure out what this baby is, please come back and let me know I want to worship him too. Right? They're warned in a dream, Herod's a liar, he actually wants to kill the baby, so why don't you not do the thing that Herod said? And so they had a choice. We can either submit to Herod's word or we can submit to God's word. They submit to God's word, they depart by another way. Once again, we see also that Joseph is visited by an angel of the Lord in his dreams. The text says, behold. When you see that in the scriptures, basically what the author wants us to do is, is pay close attention. It's, it's like the author saying, hey, look, check this out. This is important. Pay attention here. And what does he want us to pay attention to? To this story that's about to unfold. And after being instructed, the text says that he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. Now, on a side note... I'm reading this and I'm just in awe by Joseph's faith and his willingness to protect and care for his family. He doesn't linger. He doesn't hem and haw. He doesn't question. He just gets up and goes. No questions about it. He gets up and goes. And then the text says that they remained in Egypt until the death of Herod. Why? So that what the Lord had spoken by the prophet might be fulfilled. Out of Egypt I called my son. What's the point? Joseph's faithfulness, he's away from his home with the care of his wife and this child under his responsibility and the threat of death on the head of his son becomes the instrument in God's hand that ushers in the promise of deliverance and new creation. That's what's going on here. The simple guy is used by God to usher in this promise, a promise of both deliverance and new creation. Joseph is the means of Jesus' adoption, his safety, and his embodying of the story of Israel. But we're not there yet. 
But before we gloss over the circumstances to get to our Old Testament fulfillment, the Holy Family's experience as displaced foreigners seeking asylum has to matter to us in some way, shape, or form, or else Matthew wouldn't have talked about it. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright describes it like this, and I have a slide for this. He says, before the Prince of Peace had learned to walk and talk, he was a homeless refugee with a price on his head. Matthew insists that we see in Jesus, even when things are at their darkest, the fulfillment of Scripture. This is how Israel's Redeemer was to appear, and this is how God would set about liberating his people and bringing justice to the whole world. No point in arriving in comfort when the world is in misery, no point having an easy life when the world suffers violence and injustice. If he is to be Emmanuel, God with us, then he must be with us where the pain is. That's what this chapter is about. In other words, Jesus comes as the least of these in order to seek and save the least of these. Jesus comes as the least of these in order to seek and save the least of these. And, and guess what? That's exactly what we're called to do. It's exactly what we're called to do. Now, we talked about a, a little bit about this on, on Wednesday evening. I was sharing with, with the discipleship course that night about our church and, and about my desire for our church, and, and as, we, as we are stepping into a new year and, and kind of thinking through what are the next steps for us as Redeemer Fellowship. We talked about how over the last couple of years we were rebuilding from COVID and, and, and how we have really began to focus on discipleship, but, but more and more I'm, I'm starting to realize, not starting to realize, more and more I'm, I'm, I'm seeing the need for us to start thinking about outward-facing mission. Now, to be perfectly honest with you, I have no idea what that's going to look like yet. I don't know. I know there's pockets of it happening in our church. What I was imploring our people on Wednesday evening who were there, I was, I was begging them, Could you, can you please pray for the leadership of our church right now? Can you pray for me as we start to wrestle with what is this outward-facing mission supposed to look like? Because the reality is I do believe that over the last couple of years we've been preparing for just that. We've been preparing to be a people who share together in the life of Christ by loving God and loving neighbor. And, and I think most of us are convinced of that. I think we believe that that is actually what the scriptures and the story of God call us to. And so, so now, as we're looking at a new year and ready to enter into it, it's like, what are we going to do about that? And so I don't have an answer for you yet. So if you're thinking like, cool, you know, John's going to tell us what's next. Like, I, I don't know. I don't know yet. But I am asking... Well, you know, I do know what's next. I think we pray. I believe we pray, and we pray, and we pray some more for what those next steps are to look like. We know we are called to be a light in a dark place. We know we are called to be a people who show the world what God is like. And so my prayer is that we would be outward facing and that God would make clear what those next steps for us are. And so I'm asking you to join me in that prayer. But that was a little bit of a sidestep there. So let's, let's keep looking here. There's this quote that pops up in the middle of verse 15, at the end of verse 15. Out of Egypt I called my son. This quote comes from the 11th chapter of Hosea. 
If you have your Bibles, turn with me there. Hosea is right after the book of Daniel. It's in the Old Testament and before the short book of Joel. A little bit of background as you make your way there. Hosea was the last prophet in the northern kingdom of Israel, right before they fell to Assyria in around 722 BC. And the prophecy consists of warnings about Israel's unfaithfulness, a call to repent, and a promise of a future hope. Warnings about Israel's unfaithfulness, a call to repent, and a promise of future hope. And, and it starts like this. Hosea chapter 11. And I have a slide if you, if you haven't yet gotten there, but I would encourage you to look at your Bibles because there's a couple of things I'm going to want you to look at in particular. It says, When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. There's our quote. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. And I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me. And though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion when he roars. His children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria, and I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. A lot going on there. Let's, let's pick this apart a little bit. So our quote comes right in at verse 1. And once again, when the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, what do we know? We know that he's not just quoting a verse, he's quoting an entire section. He wants to call up to our minds an entire section of Scripture. Remember, when these things were written, there were no chapters, there were no numbers of verses. And so we read that verse, and it's like a hyperlink that just says, like, okay, here's the whole page. Here's the whole page. And so what is Hosea basically doing in this passage? He's recounting Israel's history. In verse 1, he talks about the exodus from Egypt. In verse 2, he talks about Israel's rebellion and unfaithfulness. And in verses 3 through 4, he talks about God's continued faithfulness. And then something happens in verse 5. It says, They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king because they have refused to return to me. Now, I want you to take note. After that word not in verse 5, does anyone have a footnote in their Bible? You have a footnote there? You, sh you should. Maybe you don't. You have a footnote? Anyone can tell me what that footnote says at the bottom? Surely. Surely. All right. So there's a translation issue. All right. Let's wrestle a little bit with a translation. Let's do a little text criticism, it's called. The context of the chapter and the book makes it really difficult to read verse 5 as they shall not return to the land of Egypt, since there are a number of times where they are said to return to Egypt. So there's a few possibilities here. The particle that this word is, not, in the Hebrew is lo, which is usually translated as not, but it can 
have a positive connotation. Or, I'm going to get a little, little bit technical here. So if you're into this, cool. If you're just like, John, what are you talking about? I'll just trust what you come up with. That's fine, too. I would encourage you to endure the technicalities, though. It could also be read as a rhetorical question. Will they not return to Israel? Suggesting, of course, they're going to return to Israel. The second possibility is that there was a scribal error, meaning that when the scribes were copying the Hebrew scriptures, they mistakenly wrote down not, which sounds very similar to to him in Hebrew. And so all that to say, and there's plenty more to say, but for our purposes here, I believe the best way to read this verse is, they shall surely return to Egypt. They shall surely return to Egypt. So let's keep going. Verses 6 through 9. What's happening here? God is depicted here as a father. But, but, but there's a little like back and forth going on here. Check this out. He says, the sword shall rage against their cities, verse 6, if you look with me, consume the bars of their gates and devour them because their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me. And though they call out to the most high, he shall not raise them up at all. And then it says in, in, in verse 8, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? I, I, you catching what's happening here? Like, like, God's really upset, and he's like, I'm done with these people. I'm not going to answer when they call. But then all of a sudden, like a minute later, he's like, nah, I love them. I love them. I can't give them up. Right now, if you're a parent, you, you understand a little bit about what's going on here, that sometimes you look at your children and you're like, I'm so done with them. I'm so done with them. I can't. But then all of a sudden you hear that voice from upstairs saying, Mommy, Daddy, I had a bad dream. And you're just like, okay. All right. I love them, so I'm going to go to them. Like, that's a little bit what's going on here. Obviously, it's not exactly the same because there are probably times when you hear that little voice from upstairs and you're just like, like, no. I'm not going to do it. I'm, like, I'm not confessing anything, but... It says in verse 9b, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. Hosea is showing us the covenant-keeping nature of God, which is what Matthew is ultimately drawing on as he quotes this passage, but we're not there yet. Stick with me here. In verses 10 through 11, we read about the promise of Israel's return from exile. They shall go after the Lord and he will roar like a lion. See, something's happening. Something's changing among the people. When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. Remember, this book was written right before the northern kingdom fell to Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. God bless you. We know that many of the scattered exiles return to the land, but, but this return was not the glorious return described throughout the prophets. It just wasn't. And it's definitely not what Hosea is envisioning in verses 10 through 11. I have a slide here. One of my professors, G.K. Beale, he argues this. He says that according to Hosea 11, the pattern of the first exodus 
at the beginning of Israel's history will be repeated again at the end of Israel's history in the end time. Israel's first exodus is to be recapitulated at that time of the nation's latter-day exodus. In other words, Hosea's prophecy is looking forward to a new exodus. A new exodus, a time when Israel would be redeemed. And so the question that we need to answer, that the text is begging of us, is how does Jesus' escape to Egypt serve as a fulfillment of what we just read in Hosea chapter 11? Well, at the beginning of the sermon, I said that Joseph's faithfulness was used by God to reveal what? The identity and the mission of Jesus. But the passage we just looked at speaks about the nation of Israel. Matthew's talking about Jesus. Hosea's talking about a nation. And that's the point. That's the point. A couple things, right? Israel was rescued out of Egypt, redeemed. But, when we, but we learn that they persisted in unfaithfulness for, for 40 years. Now, finally, after that generation died off, their children entered into the Lamb. But what did they do? They ran after foreign gods. Eventually, David takes the throne, a man after God's own heart. We're really fast-forwarding through Israel's history right now, just so you know. David takes the throne, a man after God's own heart, but what does he do? He replays the story of Adam and Eve, seeing Bathsheba, noticing that she was beautiful or good, and then taking her. What did Eve do with the, with the fruit? She saw that it was good, and she took it. And then there's Solomon, right, the wisest man to ever live, and he ends up becoming a king just like the kings of the nations. The point, Israel was meant to be a people who revealed God to the nations, but instead they became just like them. Israel was to be a people who revealed God to the nations, but instead they became just like them. And so the point that Matthew is making is that Jesus, this son of David who will be called out of Egypt, is replaying the story of Israel, retracing their steps up to the point when they failed so that he would continue in obedience and succeed in the mission Israel was always intended to carry out. Notice how Jesus' story plays out in the book of Matthew. In Matthew 3, Jesus is baptized. He passes through the waters, just as Israel passed through the parted waters of the Red Sea. Following his baptism in Matthew 4, Jesus spends 40 days in the wilderness, tempted yet remaining faithful, whereas Israel spent 40 unfaithful years in the wilderness, sinning as though it was air that they breathed. Jesus then goes up to a mountain in chapter 5. And what does he do? He delivers a new law to a new people. If you're not yet seeing it, what Matthew wants us to understand about Jesus' identity and mission is that he is everything Israel was supposed to be. Jesus is the true Israel of God, the faithful son. You guys catching that? 
You see what's happening that Matthew is trying to communicate to us? That this baby who is being brought here and there, escaping to Egypt, coming back from Egypt, price on his head, is the embodiment of Israel. And he fulfills everything that Israel failed to do. But check this out. Turn with me to Luke chapter 9. It's one of those really fun passages. I don't know if you're catching it. It's fun. Turn with me to Luke chapter 9, verses 28 through 36. Now, this is the story of what is known as the transfiguration. This moment in Jesus' ministry where he travels up onto a mountain with Peter, John, and James. And we're not going to like dig too deeply into this because this is like a sermon unto itself or multiple sermons unto itself. But he travels up onto this mountain. He has Peter, John, and James with him. And while he's up there praying, the text says that the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. In other words, the glory of Christ is shining through and his disciples are getting a sneak preview of what is to come. In other words, this is like a coming attraction, right? When we go to the movies and, and all of a sudden before the movie, what do we see? We see a bunch of coming attractions, I don't know if you guys are still moviegoers. I know COVID kind of shaked that up a little bit. I love going to the movies, and I really love the coming attractions. I want to know what's coming ahead. And when there's a particular movie that I'm excited about, like when all the Star Wars movies were coming out, I was like, I got to see the coming attraction. I want to know what's going to happen, right? I get excited. The transfiguration serves a little bit as a coming attraction. What is to come? What is to come? Now, while they're on the mountain... He's joined by Moses and Elijah. And the text says in verse 30, And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Again, verse 31. There's a footnote after the word departure. Can someone tell me what it says at the bottom of your page? Exodus. It says Exodus. It is no accident that Luke uses the word exodus to refer to the events surrounding Jesus' crucifixion. I want to quote N.T. Wright again because I think he says it best, and I have a slide for this. Luke has chosen this word, exodus, because in his death, Jesus will enact an event just like the great exodus from Egypt, only more so. In the first exodus, Moses led the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt and home to the promised land. In the new exodus, Jesus will lead all God's people out of the slavery of sin and death and home to their promised inheritance, the new creation in which the whole world will be redeemed. And here's the good news. Here's the good news. And if you were here this past Wednesday at Discipleship Course, you heard a little bit about this. Those of us who entrust ourselves to the promise and the giver of this promise, we are brought into union with Christ, union with the true Israel. 
We are grafted onto the olive tree, as it says in Romans chapter 11. We are caught up in this new exodus, and we are set free to love both God and neighbor as we await the arrival of our king. Jesus is the true and better Israel, and those of us who bend our knee to him are caught up into this new exodus, and we are now grafted into this people, God's chosen people, Israel, And we are sent out to represent that kingdom of which Jesus is seated on the throne. That's good news, Redeemer Fellowship. And not only is that good news, but it shows how the Old Testament scriptures were always pointing to a better place, a better person. And that should alone bring comfort and confidence to us as we read through our Bibles. This is good, good news. This is good, good news. For those of you who are wondering and, and, and struggling with what I'm saying, like, are you saying, John, are you saying that, that the church replaces Israel? That's not what I'm saying. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that we are grafted onto this tree and that Israel is comprised of everyone who bends their knee to King Jesus, Jew and Gentile alike. That's what I'm saying. And that's what I believe the scriptures are teaching us. And that's good news. Because the plan of God has never been disrupted. It's always been about this people, represented by Abraham, who then was represented by the kings of Israel, all of whom failed along the way, and then ultimately we are whittled down to this Israel of one, Jesus, and then it bursts out onto the scene at Pentecost where the Holy Spirit falls upon the church, and guess what? We get to participate. We get to be a part of it. That is such good news. That this ancient story of God's grace has been extended to us. And what's really cool about this passage in Matthew is that the faithfulness of a carpenter and his bride, two unassuming individuals, seeking asylum, fleeing for their lives, are the ones who took the first steps of this new exodus. They're the ones who took the first steps of this new exodus, an exodus that was fulfilled in the person and work of King Jesus when he died on a cross for our sins, rose again three days later, an exodus that echoes throughout history, folding in people one by one as we entrust ourselves to him in faith. And then those of us who have been folded in, the least of these, just as unassuming as both Joseph and Mary were, are now entrusted by God to go out and proclaim the good news of this new exodus in both word and deed. Why? So that others might join in and that the world might see God. The stories of Advent tell us about the coming of our Lord Jesus, but they also tell us how he came. My prayer for us is that we would be an Exodus generation that embodies those first steps of Joseph and Mary and ultimately of Christ. That first Exodus generation that was rescued from Egypt and every single one that followed, they were enamored by the allure of the nations by their gods, by their power, their culture. 
We have to fight that temptation. We have to choose Christ. We cannot go back to Egypt. Because it says in Matthew, out of Egypt I called my son. See, see, that's the point. We've been called out from this. We've been called out from that enslavement. We've been called away from those power structures, those institutions of the world, and we've been called into the glorious kingdom of Christ. And that has to affect who we are. It has to change us. Remember, faith disrupts. We saw it in the life of Joseph. Joseph. We saw it in the life of Mary. We see it in the life of Christ as he lives this life of faithfulness, entrusting himself to his Father, to the Spirit of God. We see it throughout church history as, as faithful saints entrust themselves to God and their lives are radically changed as a result. And I don't say radically changed in the sense of all of a sudden like things are great and hunky-dory. That's not what I mean. It wasn't easy for Joseph to say yes to this. Oh, but it was worth it. It was worth it. As he took those first steps of the new exodus, denying the, the, the worldly institutions around him, saying, no, 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 I'm not about that. I'm about following this word that has been placed before me, this word of God. That's what we're called to. That's what we're called to. And so as we've been preaching for the last three weeks, we must continue to choose this day whom we will serve. We must choose this day which voices we will allow to penetrate us, which voices we will allow to guide and shepherd us. And if it's not the voice that, can be, that, can, that lines up with this book, then it's a voice that we should cast aside. Regardless of, of how much you might like that voice of how in the past that voice maybe said good things to you. doesn't matter if it doesn't align with God's calling on our lives to love him and to love neighbor, then we must cast it to the side. We have to. And, and, and many of you might have different voices popping into your brain right now. I'm gonna allow the spirit of God to do that for you rather than give you all the voices that maybe you're listening to. But we have to fight those temptations. We have to choose this day whom we will serve, and whom we will serve has to be Christ. Has to be. And, and, that's, and that's what this story of, of Advent is teaching us. And as we, as we look at the stories of Advent and we start to learn about this Jesus that came into the world and we see how he came into the world, poor, destitute, refugee, fleeing for his life. There's a reason he came like that as we read earlier, because that's what the world is. And so we need to entrust ourselves to this baby in a manger who is no longer a baby in a manger. And we must go and show the world what God is like. Remember the Philippians 2 passage, have this mind among you which is yours in Christ Jesus, who because he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself a slave, made himself nothing. That's what we're called to. That's good news. Don't feel like it sometimes, right? But that's good news. That's good news. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, Lord, we love you with all of our hearts. We truly, truly do. I do pray for Redeemer Fellowship. I pray that we would be a people who embody 
this very thing that you've laid before us, Lord God, that you've been laying before us week in and week out, Lord. Lord, that we would be a people who choose you no matter the consequences. That we would be a people that not only cares for one another, but cares for those outside of, our, of these walls, Lord God. Help us, Lord. Help us. We beg of you to help us, Lord. Father, we love you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.